Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. In 2007, I interviewed the late Stephen Bach about his biography of Leni Riefenstahl, the filmmaker behind the Nazi propaganda films Triumph of the Will and Olympia. Riefenstahl, who died in 2003 at the age of 101, to the end of her life denied her work was political and that she was an artist. Stephen Bach, who died at the age of 70 in 2009, had been a studio executive and turned to books when he wrote Final Cut, his memoir about the making of the film Heaven's Gate. He followed that with a biography of the playwright Moss Hart and then a biography of actress Marlena Dietrich which, as he says, led him to Laney, the life and work of Laney Riefenstahl. What prompted me to get into it was the Dietrich book that I had done. I had studied with Joseph von Sternberg, the man who discovered Dietrich. I talked with Dietrich at length during the time that I was writing about her. And it was immediately clear that every time I researched Dietrich, I would bump into Riefenstahl. They were born only eight months apart in the same city, similar neighborhoods. They had similar upbringing. They were similar as people in their youth. Both were beautiful. Both were highly ambitious. Both were sexually liberated. Nothing was going to stop either one of them. But they obviously took right and left turns once it came to the Third Reich. And that intrigued me. And after I finished the Dietrich book, I couldn't get Riefenstahl out of my head. What makes someone ally herself with a regime like the Third Reich, with a a leader like Hitler, and then remain for a hundred years, because she died at the age of 101, absolutely unrepentant. Now, she was alive at the time you were working on the Dietrich book. Yes, she was alive. And in fact, I discussed her with Dietrich because it was well known that Riefenstahl was actually insanely jealous of Dietrich. What did Dietrich have to say about Lenny? She thought that Lenny was somewhere between a contemptible sycophant of Hitler and a joke. Uh, She felt that Lenny's protestations of innocence were simply laughable and wouldn't waste time on them. Lenny, you explain, was up for the role of the Blue Angel and didn't get it. She was up for the role, but everybody in Berlin was up for the role. I mean, before Joseph von Sternberg actually went to Germany to find a Lola Lola, he had briefly thought about casting Gloria Swanson. Gloria Swanson, who was a huge star at that time, couldn't possibly have made this movie because the movie was made simultaneously in German and English. Dietrich could speak English. She could speak German. She could sing. And Lainey Riefenstahl, somehow or other, late in life, 
fantasized that if Dietrich had not been chosen, she would have been forgetting that she barely spoke English and she didn't sing at all. So I think this is one of those fantasy things that fed her own self-image but didn't have any reality. Now, Marlena, was she from the beginning anti-fascist? I mean, you must have talked about this. Did she see prior to 33 who Hitler really was? How aware was she and how aware was the film community as opposed to uh, dark-haired ambition woman here? Yeah. Well, Marlena left Germany in the spring of 1930, three years before Hitler came to power. And I don't think that she had given any more thought to the notion that Hitler actually would come to power than millions of other Germans who didn't believe he ever would. I mean, he never won an election. But once he did come to power, Dietrich understood, why are all my Jewish friends heading for Hollywood or in the other direction to Prague or Vienna or London or wherever? And her humanism, it's the only right word for it, immediately was inflamed by this. I don't think there was a second where she hesitated and thought, well, maybe Hitler's going to do good things for Germany. I don't think that was in her makeup at all. And when the Germans, in the person of Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister, when the Germans in the late 30s tried to entice her back to Germany as a propaganda coup, which she certainly would have been, she immediately took out American citizenship as a kind of slap in the face, not only to Goebbels and his cohort, but to the Germany that had endorsed this party and this policy. Though she didn't leave Germany because of Hitler, she left Germany because of Hollywood, but she stayed out of Germany because of Hitler. And then she spent almost the entirety of World War II working at the front, singing songs, telling jokes, working for the boys. And most people don't know Dietrich was the very first woman ever to receive the Medal of Freedom, which is the civilian equivalent of the Congressional Medal of Honor. The reason I wanted to start here is because I want to put in perspective that there were alternatives. When you're reading a biography of Leni Riefenstahl, it's never quite clear how clear it was what was going on. Sure. If you are at the center of power, and if you are, for want of a better term, palling around with Hitler, Goebbels, Goering, Martin Bormann, Rudolf Haas, Albert Speer, when you're hanging out with those guys, not to mention Julius Streicher, the most virulent anti-Semite of them all, it's really hard not to have some notion of what's going on. I don't mean in terms of details, how many Jews did we kill at Auschwitz today, but the general tenor of where things are going. Plus which, I'm talking obviously about Laney now, from 1933 on, you had to sign papers proving that you were not Jewish in order to work. So there wasn't any ambiguity about the racial policies. The actual Nuremberg laws, which were the ones that deprived Jews of citizenship in Germany, didn't come until 1935. But already in 1933, 
the image was clear. Hitler took office on January 30th of 1933, and on April 1st of that year, the nation had its first official Jewish boycott. So people who tell you or write or or claim that they had no notion of what was going on either are lying or they were in some kind of a coma. Stephen Bach, before we continue with that, I want to get back to what I asked you at the beginning concerning another biography came out at the same time. Is it because now that she's dead, people suddenly can look at her objectively that when she was alive, there was the force of her own personality that kind of limited people from really taking a hard look on what this woman was, and nobody wanted to confront a 95-year-old still doing artistic work. I mean, what what's this about? Well, yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. The fact that she died made it easier to publish anything about her because she was enormously litigious. She had lawyers from the old days who would represent her at no cost. So she sued people the way the rest of us have breakfast every day of the week. The book that you are referring to, I did know it was published in German in 2002. And I believe it was a dissertation. She was still alive, but very near death at that time. I read the book then. I thought it was pretty good. And I used it in a couple of instances. And in my book, I specifically correct it in some other instances. But I was already writing my book and writing while she was alive. And I must say, it was a constant concern. What happens if she gets wind of something that I've uncovered that she doesn't want uncovered, and there's a lot that I do uncover? What happens if she decides to sue me? Your audience may not quite understand that it doesn't matter whether you win or lose a lawsuit. You've got to pay the lawyers. So for Lenny Riefenstahl, with lawyers working for free, suing people right and left, she got a lot of traction going because there were people who didn't want to have to go to the expense of defending themselves in courts, which, as everybody knows, can be hugely expensive. Your book is more of a biography that puts everything in context, whereas the other one is more specific in certain areas to get a sense of who Lenny was. This book is more in keeping with the chronological story of her life. Well, that's one reason that I wasn't concerned about the other book. I mean, I didn't know originally, of course, that the other book was going to be translated and published at the same time as my book, which probably isn't coincidental. But I didn't worry about that because that book was subtitled in German, Leni Riefenstahl, A German Career. And that view of her was that there was something in her career that that was specifically German and that was meant for a German readership. I knew that I was trying to write a full-blooded biography, which had, obviously, a lot of political content, a lot of historical content, a lot of movie industry content, because that's where I come from originally. But I really wanted to tell the story of this woman who was so different from the other woman that I had written a biography of. To me, in that sense, the two books are complementary, perhaps, but not really competitive. 
having watched over the last couple of nights most of Triumph of the Will, I just couldn't get through the whole damn thing. I'll try again later. Wow. You know, here we are sitting in a country where a lot of people have said that, you know, the Bush administration, neo-fascists and all of that, and that there are the Ann Coulters around, Lenny Riefenstahl's without portfolio. The question that I have for you is how much of what went on in Germany and how much of where Lenny Riefenstahl was coming from is specifically German, do you think? I think much less of it than we assumed until recently. One of the things that was terribly difficult in writing this book was to experience 9-11. I, I was maybe a third of my way into the book when 9-11 occurred. And it just happened. It's an accident of my schedule that when 9-11 happened, I was writing about the Reichstag fire in Germany in 1933, shortly after Hitler took office. That burning of the Reichstag, the parliament building in Berlin, served a very, very similar purpose for the Hitler regime that 9-11 unfortunately served the Bush administration. I'm not saying that the Bush administration is a fascist regime or that Bush is Hitler or Cheney is Hitler or any of that, but both of these occurrences were followed by an almost immediate capitulation of the citizenry to a stripping of civil rights. Hitler did it, and the Bush administration did it with the Patriot Act. And the appeal to fear, and the appeal to trust the leadership, no matter what, and the appeal to you're with us or you're against us, is right out of the Hitler playbook. I don't think that he used those words or that Goebbels used those well, words. Well, actually, as I was watching Triumph of the Will, he repeated over and over the word obedience. Triumph of the Will, easily the most important and effective propaganda film ever made, is fascinating to look at from the point of view of ideology, because if you look at it trying to find a political program, you won't find it. It's not there. What's there are pleas for, as you mentioned, obedience, pleas for patriotism, pleas for unity, pleas for trusting the leaders. The only note that Hitler strikes in Triumph of the Will that is not almost exactly what we see in America in political propagandizing from both major parties. The only thing that Hitler stresses that we don't is sacrifice. And I think it's the one note that our politicians ought to be borrowing from Hitler. But if you look at the manipulation of citizenry fear and the desire for order that Hitler was able to capitalize on. Very parallel, very similar things were happening in the United States during the whole period that I was writing about all of this where it concerned Hitler. So that I was more aware of it and I probably exaggerated it, but it's not really different. Stephen Bach, getting back to Leni Riefenstahl, for the people who don't know who she was, in summary, she was the filmmaker who created 
as you say, the most impressive piece of propaganda, political propaganda we've ever seen on film, which is Triumph of the Will about the 1934 Nuremberg Nazi Party meetings. Uh, she also created the four-hour film Olympia about the 1936 Olympics. The reason I didn't watch that is because it struck me from seeing the photos and from seeing the little excerpts I saw in uh, what was it, The Horrible, Wonderful Life of Leni Riefenstahl, yes. that most of the techniques and most of the imagery she used has been so overused since then, particularly in television coverage of the Olympics, that I didn't think I could even sit through it. There isn't a sports photographer alive who is not in Leni Riefenstahl's debt because of Olympia. Whether he or she has ever heard of Leni Riefenstahl, it doesn't matter. The odd thing is... The Olympics had never been filmed. And the previous Olympics in 1932 was held in Los Angeles, and nobody bothered to, to film it. They were a few newsreels, and I've seen them. But to make a full evening length, more than that, movie had never been done. And as you point out, it's four hours long. And the innovations in how we photograph the human body in motion, how we photograph sports events, how we photograph the onlookers who are such a vital part of the sports events. All of those things are tremendously well realized in Olympia and come down to us to the current day. What is also true about Olympia, especially with the currently available version on DVD, and your listeners, in case they want to go out and get it or rent it, they should know. The currently available version is an expurgated version. It's a sanitized version that the West German government in the 60s and 70s insisted that Leni Riefenstahl herself cut out all the swastika banners that she could, all the great, big, huge, close shots of Hitler looking like a god, because Olympia, too, is a work of propaganda. I like to say that Triumph of the Will was the movie that made Hitler safe for Germany, and Olympia was the movie that made Hitler safe for the world. But that version can no longer be seen, and in fact, the rights to Olympia, which rested with the German government until Leni Riefenstahl died, have just been purchased by the International Olympic Committee, and I doubt very much that they are ever going to say, let's put Hitler back in. Well, it should be back in. I mean, we should be seeing the film as it was. I agree with you. For historical purposes, we should. And your listeners may be interested to know that Triumph of the Will, this tremendously effective propaganda film made in 1934 and released in 1935, is to the present day forbidden in Germany because of its ability to incite certain kinds of feelings that the Germans clearly want to avoid going through all over again. I disagree with that policy. I think we ought to look at Triumph of the Will. I think we ought to understand, A, how much that movie has influenced our own propaganda filmmaking, because we do, like it or not, live in a propaganda-saturated culture, and we ought to be looking at what she did on film in order to arm ourselves against it. As I was watching Triumph of the Will, and after reading your book, I noticed a few things. First off, 
this is what you can do with an unlimited budget and virtually unlimited time to create a propaganda film. Any chance that she might have, you know, been right in saying this is pure documentary is absurd, absolutely absurd, particularly when you look at how the film builds from the bucolic to the martial. It's a definite arc within the context of the film itself. She knew what she was doing. Absolutely. Third, that many of the techniques in the film are very subtle, extremely subtle, so that you have to understand what she is putting in the back of somebody's head. She knew what she was doing. She was good at it, yet at the same time, she was using silent film techniques at a time when film itself had become static, so people were overwhelmed by what they saw, and they might not have been as overwhelmed eight years before. Is that all correct, you think? I think that everything you have just said is absolutely true and extraordinarily insightful. There's no question about it. No such film had ever been made before. And it's significant, I think, that Hitler never asked for another one to be made because this one did everything that he needed in terms of presenting him as a charismatic leader who was almost a savior of the German people and going to bring order and honor back to a nation that had been defeated in war. But the techniques that she brought were really feature film, silent film techniques. And no one had thought to do that before. Even if you look at American filmmaking during the same period, FDR was president, and you can look at miles of footage. A camera is planted in front of him. He makes a speech into a microphone. You hear people applauding, and that's the end of it. With this, you have the famous opening sequence with Hitler, never seen, descending from the clouds like a messianic savior, then driving through Nuremberg with the intercutting of Hitler and the adoring audience. Uh, I mean, we don't know that that audience, by the way, was actually reacting to Hitler. They could have been reacting to Mickey Mouse or something. But the way that it's intercut, you clearly have that response pattern. You have a sequence where you see Hitler standing, you see the crowd, then you, you see directly over Hitler's shoulder, then back to Hitler in the car, and of course there's no cameraman behind his shoulder. I just screened the movie in Los Angeles for a film hip audience. And do you know what? I had to explain that to them. They hadn't noticed. Really? The film is made so smoothly that that drive into Nuremberg, which I, I hope your audience can visualize it, it's Hitler in a car standing up, giving the Hitler salute to the people. But you see him from behind, you see him from in front, you see him from the side, you see him from high above. There is no way that that is an actual document of a real incident. That's something for which you require drive-bys multiple times, move the camera, avoid showing, and so on, as, as you have basically described it. So what we're dealing with in Triumph of the Will, basically, is a fiction film about politics that is designed to promote a leader and an agenda. And what we call that is not documentary. We call that propaganda. Leni Riefenstahl was very, very close to Hitler. And in fact, after the war, she used that personal closeness to dissociate herself from 
what the man was saying. We were good friends. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty much one of her defenses. Well, it was a, a key defense. She had an ability to kind of suggest, well, I knew he was in politics. I didn't quite know what he did. You know, that kind of thing. Or another favorite gambit, she would say, yes, I admired him. So did Winston Churchill in 1934. You know, those kinds of arguments. But always what it came back to for her was, I was an artist. I was an artist. I wasn't uh, dirtying my hands with the mundane aspects of politics. I didn't know what was going on and so on. It's funny. uh, Several years ago, I interviewed a New Yorker writer named Mavis Gallant, and she made an interesting comment. She believes that you cannot separate art and politics, that art is always on some level political. She said there are those who say that art can be apolitical. She said what's curious about that is all of them are on the right, all of the people who say that. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. There is a famous film critic called Kevin Brownlow, who's a wonderful writer and thinker and filmmaker himself, who said about Lainey Riefenstahl, art and politics must never be confused. And my point of view is that in Lainey Riefenstahl's work, they aren't confused, they are fused, that it is impossible to separate the two. Maybe if we're talking about Jackson Pollock dripping paint or Mark Rothko making floating panels of color, maybe there's no political content. But that doesn't mean that the painters are apolitical. It just means that those paintings may not trade in political content. I happen to believe that it is the responsibility of the artist to have a political point of view and to have an impact on the culture and on the society. On the one hand, I wouldn't dream of saying to Lenny Riefenstahl, you can't say that. I would say, okay, go ahead and say it, but don't call it something that it isn't. Don't tell me that it's reality. Don't tell me that it's undoctored documentary. Don't tell me that it's apolitical or unpolitical when it reeks of politics. Call it what it is, and then let's have it out on the merits. Speculation here. We can understand why she would be as reticent as possible in the aftermath of World War II because she didn't want to go, you know, to Spandau Prison for 20 years. But there are two quick questions here. First is the real reasons why she never joined the Nazi party. You kind of go into it a little bit there. There weren't that many women. I don't know if that's sufficiently an answer. The second one is after this, when she finally settled down by, say, 1950, how would the world have treated her if she'd actually come clean? So that's two different questions. Well, uh, on the issue of um, why she didn't join the Nazi party, first, as I say in the book, only 5% of German women ever joined the party. But that isn't the reason. The reason is she had Hitler as a sponsor before he ever gained power. She didn't need to join the party. She wasn't a joiner in any case. And if she had been a member of the party, it might have interfered with her social life or or with her professional life. She could come and go at the absolute center of Third Reich personalities. She knew them all. They all were helping her. I just don't think there was any point in adding to it by carrying a card. She also lied about so many things. And one of the lies that she 
continued to tell until she died was that her mother and father never joined the Nazi party, which is absolutely untrue. Her father joined on April 1st, 1933, the day of the Jewish boycott, and we have his membership card number. I think I print it even in the book. On the second question, what would have happened if she had come clean? We have to understand that the availability of Third Reich documents has been a very sometime thing that there are documents that have been released only since the fall of the Soviet Union because the Russians took them to Moscow at the end of the war out of Berlin and only since 1991 have some of those things, for instance, certain uh, volumes of Goebbels' diaries in which Leni Riefenstahl plays a part, all kinds of contracts and agreements and that sort of thing that have only very recently become available so that we can know the nature of the documentation that would have been necessary to get a full picture of Laney's relationship to the Third Reich in 1945. Those documents simply were not there. She went through three denazification trials. She was ultimately declared a fellow traveler, a sympathizer, and that had no penalties, and she could go ahead and work. My belief is that if the documents that we have now had been available, she certainly would have had some sort of prison sentence as an enabler. The publisher of the Nazi Party literature I don't mean a publisher who chose the stuff. Right. I just mean the guy who owned the printing press, a man named Anand, went to prison for 10 years as an enabler. And if anyone was an enabler, Laney was. And I think that she would have gone. There's another, I'm not sure this is what you meant by your question, but I think it's a vastly intriguing possibility. What if she had come clean and said, I'm sorry. That never happened. She never was willing to do that. What I think would have happened was that the world would have looked at her and they would have said, okay, we're glad you see the error of your ways. We are now willing to celebrate you for your brilliant technique, etc., etc. Let's see if you can apply that technique to something more positive, more constructive, worthier, or at the very least, come teach, come be a spokesman for filmmaking. Any number of possibilities were, I think, available to her if she had ever been able to admit that she had made a mistake, but not unlike other people we know who cannot admit making a mistake. There is an almost pathological character to that refusal to admit making a mistake, as if if you admit it, you pull out the one card that makes the whole house of cards collapse. And beyond that, it's possible to say that a person who would admit it would not have made a movie like Triumph of the Will. I think that's so good because it, it's probable that a person who could have admitted a mistake would have had a respect for truth that does not exist in Triumph of the Will. And I get terribly, terribly tired 
of people who want to say to me, oh, well, Triumph of the Will is yesterday's news. Politically, it still is a brilliant piece of filmmaking. And what I want to say to them is, look, a lie that is beautifully told is still a lie. Kind of brings up ideas that Karl Rove's erasure of emails ties in perfectly with his ability as a propagandist. Absolutely. When I was in Washington a couple of weeks ago, and I was doing a a show that involved call-ins in the Washington area, and somebody called in and said, did you know that G. Gordon Liddy, when he was in the Nixon White House, rented Triumph of the Will on 35 millimeter to project it for everybody who worked in the Nixon White House to get an idea of the playbook. I did not know that until this caller called in, who had been there at the time. But it doesn't surprise me. Lenny Riefenstahl, later on, of course, um, years later, she could not make another film. And it's pretty obvious that whatever her great skills, they were extremely limited. Her uh, fiction films are implausible and beautiful, but completely absurd. If I haven't seen them, I suspect they're hard to sit through. The one called The Blue Light, you can sit through. The one called Tiefland, you can't. She later wound up becoming a photographer of the Nuba people of the Sudan. She was, of course, debunked by pulling the same sort of fiction out of nonfiction as she had before, though a lot of people loved that. I think it's pretty clear she didn't change, that there has to be a direct line between Triumph of the Will, Olympia, and the Nuba pictures. Yes, I think so. I think there's a direct line from her childhood. Her inner childhood, she said to a friend, a chum, I want to be something quite great, without specifying what it was. It wasn't, I want to be a great dancer, I want to be a great actress, I want to be a great director, a great photographer. It was a kind of statement of needy narcissism. And I think that that was the thing that drove her right to the end and that you see it in all of these endeavors, including her photography with the Nuba. Two questions concern two people who pop up in your book. One is L. Ron Hubbard, who was apparently friends with her. Yes, uh, L. Ron Hubbard and Lainey Riefenstahl went into business together briefly. Uh, It was after the war, and her movie, The Blue Light, which had been made in 1932, somebody wanted to make a ballet of it, and Lainey, who did not have a lot of original ideas, was always trying to recycle the same old idea. The new version of the old idea was, let's make The Blue Light in 1952, and she hired a screenwriter. And the screenwriter that she hired was L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. And what happened on that project was that he abandoned it because he got a gig in South Africa. And he tried to persuade Laney to go to South Africa with him. Apparently, he was not bothered by the fact that South Africa had the most despicable apartheid policy at that time. And he went to South Africa. She stayed in London uh, in his house. She lived in L. Ron Hubbard's house in London while trying to get this remake of The Blue Light made. Nothing ever happened to it, of course. 
The other person I want to talk to you about and mention briefly is Avery Brundage. Uh, as I was growing up, Avery Brundage was the czar of the International Olympic Committee and ruled it with an iron fist. Uh, I didn't realize that he was also a Nazi sympathizer and a terrible anti-Semite, uh, which I discovered in this book. And I'm just wondering how this man, this horrible man, could not only survive but prosper in the aftermath of World War II. That I don't know, but I know that he had such so many international connections with people who were sympathetic to views he held. As a, What I do know about him is that after he stopped being head of the International Olympic Committee, he moved to Germany, died there, and is in fact buried in a town called Garmisch-Partenkirchen. Stephen Bach, I'd like to switch gears and talk a little about Hollywood because that was your past. You were uh, you were an executive at United Artists when they made uh, Heaven's Gate, right? Yes. That was your triumph. <laughs> oh, thank you. But you're still in, in L.A. and you're still in and around the movie business, right? Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I, I teach film at Columbia in New York and at Bennington College in Vermont. And if anything were to uh, come up about a movie project, I would be very happy because I actually love the movie business. But it's changed so radically in the 20 years since I was a studio executive that I'm not sure that what Hollywood wants to make is what I would want to make or even what Hollywood wants to make is what I would want to see. In light of that, uh, not that long ago I saw a movie called 300 and got into a discussion with a friend of mine whether that was an exemplar of the fascist aesthetic. I haven't seen the movie, but I re I did read the reviews. And it was, I think it was Sus Susan Sontag, who 30 years ago uh, pointed out the affinity of S&M to fascism and Nazism on the simplest level, it's all that black leather and whips and chains and that sort of thing. But I wouldn't be surprised that a person would want to attach a kind of fascist label to 300 if it is what I read in the reviews. I didn't see it because I was traveling. I'm sort of interested in it, but not very. Once I read that the New York Times said that it was as violent as Apocalypto and twice as stupid, I thought, this probably isn't a movie I will get off on. One thing I noticed in seeing the movie, which I detested, by the way, was that as with the films of, of Riefenstahl, it's visually stunning, but there is talk about democracy. If you remove that, then what you're looking at is a glorification of the perfect body and a glorification of militarism. And when I see that, uh, immediately a little red flag goes off, despite the sop to we're protecting Athens. Sure. I think all of that is valid, but I just want to say one thing about technique and technical advances. They don't last long. You go back in film history, even the talkies, I mean, we know this, this is an old story. The first talkies, everybody flocked to them just for the novelty of hearing the sound. But within a very brief period of time, they began wanting the sound to be about something. And my favorite recent example is the Matrix movies. Uh, the first Matrix, 
knocked kids out. They thought it was just terrific. The second matrix, not so much. And by the third matrix, they rejected the thing altogether because the technique was now old. And where was the narrative? Where was the emotional connection? Where were all of those things? And this is a lesson that it seems Hollywood has to learn over and over and over again, that once the audience gets hip to computer-generated images, they know that Spider-Man is not flying through the sky, and you wind up getting the kind of reviews that Spider-Man 3 is now getting. Great special effects, but nobody really goes for special effects. Triumph of the Will was important in one other sense. It's quoted in many, many films, apparently deliberately in films like Star Wars. How do you feel about a film with such a past being quoted as if it were merely, you know, quoting Picasso? I'm very, very ambivalent about it. I think there is something to be said about the deflating aspects of humor. So that when a film parodies Triumph of the Will and makes us laugh, I do think there's something healthy going on that we can now look at Triumph of the Will and realize how absurd it is to be photographing millions of Nazi flags as if they really meant something. At the same time, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And I think that accepting Triumph of the Will as if it were just another film is a very dangerous kind of short-sighted thing to do. Now that Lainey Riefenstahl is dead and we're beginning to see a more honest appraisal, where do you think her reputation will go over the course of the next 15 or 20 years? Over the next 15 or 20 years, there will probably be a film about her life. Jodie Foster's been announcing such a film for the past 10 years. I think that people will be able to sit back and look at Riefenstahl's work and say, yes, there are two incredibly accomplished films, but they are films that are dubious in all the ways that we like to think about art. Truth opening us up to experiences that enlarge our sense of life rather than closing down our sense of life. I mean, Triumph of the Will is an amazing movie on, in one regard. What it asks you to do is to become one of those 500,000 extras who have no faces, no independent movements, other than creating patterns in service of one man, Adolf Hitler. That's a very frightening kind of thing. And I think this will become clearer as audiences are able to, to look and evaluate what's really there. Stephen Bach, are you working on another biography, another book at this point? I'm working on another book. It's not a biography. It's nonfiction. I will be working on it once summer comes. I'm just thinking about it now. Laney was Stephen Bach's final book. He died of cancer two years after this interview aired. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.